from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. Hello, my name is Eddie Sato, and this is Cars That Matter. This week, I'm continuing my conversation with Robert Ross. So let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about watches. I hear that that's a recent Robert Ross passion is watches. I've been interested in watches for a long time, but I'm a small-time collector. Watches are great. Watches are little machines. They're cars that you don't have to change the oil in, although you do have to put whale oil in them every few years when you send them back to the factory to be serviced. The whole feeling of vintage cars and resto mods and all things analog, what do you have to say about that? Because you know there was a time in the 70s when you and I, we saw those Casio watches and thought, well, the world will all be digital by next month. But look at how we are fasting when you said little machines. Talk about that. Nicest gift I ever got when I was young. My dad gave me one of the first Accutron watches when I graduated from high school. And I was amazed that it had a little tuning fork and a battery in it. But I think catapulting ourselves forward a few decades, certainly analog has its place, whether it's a watch or an automobile. I mean, I sent six beautiful Weber carburetors out for a complete refurbishment and rebuilding for a car. And to me, that is sort of the essence of analog. These are great little machines in and of themselves and hugely complicated, but exquisitely beautiful. And I can get as lost in a wire diagram of a Weber garb or Delorto garb as I can in any automobile. Analog is great. And it's not just nostalgia. It's because these things were creations that worked independent of mysteries like microchips and solid state devices. They were mechanical things. I'm a real fan of the LP. I collect them. have a number of turntables because I like the machines. And by the way, I like the way they sound. At their best, they can sound absolutely remarkable. And by the way, I can fix them. I can work on them. Everything about them is something that I can grasp. And if I don't know how to fix it, I can find someone who can. And I can't do that when the tracking laser on my CD player goes out. And by the way, they haven't made that device for 10 years. And by the way, it goes to the junk pile. No car made before 1973, Eddie, ever has to go to the junk pile. Think about it. Is part of the comfort and love of all this, the idea that analog things were made by people without the assistance of computers. Not all analog things, of course. Many analog things are made with computers. But frankly, I look back at the joinery of cars of the 70s. I think, why is this a great car? I'm so spoiled now by robotic welding and everything else. It makes everything so perfect. Your eye is so much more trained, kind of like watching VHS tapes. You kind of go, either it's my eyesight. How did I sit through this? It's funny how we get conditioned. But since the show is called Cars That Matter, what matters the most to you? Almost like in a hierarchy of needs about a car? What matters the most to you? I mean, you, you've talked a little bit about Porsche 911 in the past. You've talked about different things, but what are the things that sort of matter to you in a car? Well, that's interesting, Eddie. And I think it's a question that I've got to sound like some slippery politician here and sort of evade it because there's no single answer. I think driving a car is an experience completely independent of appreciating a car for its aesthetic or engineering qualities. So for me, driving a car like a Porsche 911, whether it's old or new, is probably the quintessential driving experience. That gives you everything you need. You got the five basic food groups of driving pleasure in a 911. You got the power, you got the handling, you got the size, the weight distribution. You've got everything you want in a 911. Now, if I sound like a 911 acolyte, I am. I mean, I just, I love them all. But it doesn't look like some cars. Doesn't look like an Italian supermodel 
Does it look like a beautiful Jaguar XKE? So I think there's a time and a place for cars that just look great, that just express a dream. How beautiful can something with four wheels be? And that's when you bring out the big guns, whether your gun happens to be from Lamborghini or Aston Martin or Ferrari, or you know maybe it's a 59 Cadillac, whatever your pleasure. Or maybe for a young guy who was, in my case, struggling to go for the gold, maybe it's a 77 Lancia Scorpion. Whatever it is, there's a sense of beauty that has to take its place. Would you say that whether it's the mechanical experience of the car or it's aesthetic, it has to move you? And that's really what matters. Like art, art moves us. Art gives us an emotional experience. And to me, one of the ways of measuring a great car is when you lock your car in the parking lot and you're walking away from your car and you're leaving the parking lot, do you kind of just look back at it from a distance? <laughs> just to take one last look at the look, you kind of go, I'm going to go look at it. I'm going to see how it looks from over here. And you have to kind of give it a little nod goodbye, those things that you feel. It's so true. When you can't tear your eyes away from it, it's probably done its job. Unless, of course, it's like a bad car wreck. You know, everyone thinks about something like a Pontiac Aztec or name your poison. And there are some cars that are just so abominable, you can't help but look at them either. I'm glad we have those markers in our automotive landscape because it puts everything in perspective. The good, the bad, the ugly, so to speak. If you could stamp out one thing in the automotive industry, what would that be if you could change one thing? As an armchair designer, and those are the sum total of my qualifications as a car designer, in a desperate desperate attempt to quote unquote brand and identify themselves on the highway in a time when shapes by virtue of legislation and by virtue of aerodynamic principles are more and more the same. Cars are trying to distinguish themselves from one another with their grill. And Eddie, we have entered an age of the grill wars and I've railed about this before, and some of the greatest atrocities are being perpetrated by designers who were raised better than this at BMW, Lexus, possibly the biggest offender, companies that are creating caricatures, not cars, cars that look like cartoon characters from the cartoon cars with eyes and mouths and really a, a just a abominable design. I think it's true. If you look at muscle cars like a Camaro, you can definitely see a face in a lot of these cars. I mean, if you want, well, let's go all the way back to Herbie the Love Bug, but that was much more of a subtle thing. I wonder if movies like Cars have influenced this where they say, well, if you want to be ostentatious, we're just going to make the biggest possible grill that you could possibly imagine. But I think it's an interesting observation. And I think you're right. Designers are better than that. Do you think electric cars with the lack of need for airflow through the front like that? Like if you look at the new Mach-E, which is sort of like a knockout, very derivative of the early Tesla, by the way. What do you think of those front ends? Well, it's funny. When Tesla took the grill off their car or the faux grill to finally acknowledge the fact that it didn't really need one for a radiator proper, I always thought the thing kind of looked like a Ken doll or a Barbie doll with a hump, but nothing really serious going on down there. <laughs> it's still very difficult for me to look at one of those cars coming straight on and not imagine that there's some serious characteristic that's missing. But it's on it's designed at least by virtue of that. I remember when some motorcycle manufacturers started locating the gasoline tanks lower down in the frame such that the gas tank itself became maybe a storage compartment or something. I thought, well, how fraudulent is this? It's supposed to be a gas tank. So if it doesn't need a gas tank, don't put a gas tank there. Make it something else. 
honest design is really hard to come by. I think when we see electric cars with fake radiators, it's probably time for a change. But I do agree it's going to usher in a whole new design paradigm and the consumer's going to have to get used to that. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. This has been leading into a great discussion. Where do you think this is all going with electric and so many companies walking away in five years or so from aspirated cars at all? How does that strike you? It's certainly the multi-billion dollar question. It's inevitable that electric cars are going to dominate the landscape eventually. But I think along with those will come some modicum of autonomy, more or less. And at that point, I think cars become more commodities than they've ever been before, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, every time I take the freeway. I wish in my heart that speeds were regulated and people could take the hands off the wheel so they'd be forced to drive responsibly, you know, with a computer. But I don't think that electrification is going to make cars any more visceral an experience. They will become something else. Whether that says that we've lived in the golden age of the automobile, I think is undeniable. To turn the key and fire up a V12 engine and hear the throats of those carbs open up and suck about three gallons of gas in the first five minutes, that's a pretty heady brew, Eddie. It's hard to beat, man. And I guarantee you, there's no full-size slot car that'll give you that kind of thrill, no matter how fast it goes. And I almost wonder, and I'd just like to see what you think, is if you look at analog watches, we were just talking about watches. Literally, you don't need analog watches. Basically, you could have a digital watch, a rubber $5 digital watch, and like the electric car, it could be outmoded and become a luxury item. I mean, I almost wonder if gasoline-powered cars take a different place in the psyche as this luxury item, like having a Cartier watch or a Piaget watch is versus having a Timex or your daily driver. In other words, cars become mobility and automobiles become these fantastic things you see as an anomaly going down the road, everyone. And it'd be very difficult, I think, to completely abolish legacy vehicles, especially. I certainly think the legislation is going to be challenged and create challenges for urban landscapes where both the newfangled cars and the old cars have to work together and coexist. You can still ride a horse on the street in Los Angeles. It's not illegal. Obviously, the equestrian analogies will probably be the first to be imagined when you start thinking about old cars in a future setting. So, you know, there may be racetracks and horse trails for both. I certainly don't think they're going to go away by any stretch of the imagination. Imagine this, when an old car becomes a different kind of luxury icon than it is today, you know, it becomes something that uh, someone really has to go a little out of their way to want to own in the same way that a horse would be exactly that. You have to go a little bit out of your way to want to own a horse. But I guess the rewards for the equestrian folks are as great as they are for us car people, Eddie. I know that it'd be hard for me to give one up. And guess what? If they told me I couldn't have a car, if they told me I couldn't have my old Lamborghini or whatever it happens to be, I'd park it in the living room and tell them to go to hell. You're the king of <laughs> transitions here. There's developers today that are doing racetracks with condos, with the cars in the condos where collectors clubs are now meeting in enclaves. And it's not unheard of like the Aston Martin apartments there in Miami. 
where your car is in the house. Do you feel that the car will become a decorative item in the home with a track where the car collector just becomes part of an elite community, kind of like having a golf course at a country club? And hey, you're just going to like, I'm waiting for a blackout in the future so you can take your 911 out when no one can drive their electric car because they're all dead and you can just have the highway to yourself <laughs> and everyone's going, where did he get that gasoline? You know, your car would be worth a fortune. Well, it's Road Warrior all over again. Yeah, it's definitely Mad Max. I love that. I've always been a believer that every home should have at least one motorcycle inside. To me, motor vehicles, whether they have two wheels or three or four or whatever, are truly the sculpture of the 20th century. I think it's probably easy to argue that there's nothing more inspiring three-dimensionally than a car. I'll tell you, to me, they all belong inside. As for some of these private enclaves, certainly with the tracks, it's true. But that's come about for another reason too, Eddie. Cars today are just so powerful and their performance is so extreme that it's impossible to enjoy that on the road. A lot of the folks with the resources to acquire these cars have of necessity decided they're going to keep them in a trackside setting because that's how they can actually exploit the performance of them. Let's make no mistake, it's not that fun to drive a Ferrari at 40 miles an hour, as I did recently through Malibu Canyon behind a horse trailer in second gear. It was quite an insult, as it were, to have this incredible thoroughbred clopping behind a Borax mule train. It really kind of made me wonder what is important. I guess what's important is being in front with nobody in front of you. Exactly. You paralleled living your life to driving in many ways, like kind of like driving a car. You would like to elaborate on that for us? If there were any philosophy that connected cars and life, it would be that maybe living life and driving a car is not about achieving a remarkable top speed or notable performance figures, but having a quality of experience almost independent of the extremes. We've talked before on this program about how it's much more fun to drive a slow car fast than it is a fast car slow. Similarly, I think when living life, it's a lot more fun to actually have those dynamic experiences, the ones that let you sort of maybe push a little limit here and there, explore some new things. What does this small 1300cc Lotus do when I step on the gas and kick the end out a little bit? What does this little Alfa Romeo do? What does this BMW 2002 have to offer me? So it's not always the biggest and the best. It's sometimes the most authentic and the most fun. Those are the memories that come back to make us smile years after the events have happened. This is the same with life. People you meet, meals you have, glass of wine that you share with a friend. I mean, those are the moments that are important. Yeah, the journey is the destination sometimes. It really is. It's not a drag race. It's more of a rally, I guess, right? That's right. That's right. You never know what you're going to find and you're going to come across to those things. So what would your words of advice be? Do you have any words of advice to others out there that maybe wish they could have experienced all the different things that you've seen and done? Because if you haven't owned all these things, you've certainly gotten to sit on and drive and paste and smoke and all kinds of various things from cigars to audio to wine. Well, I'm trying to give up the cigars, but wine, that's going to be a little tougher. I'll tell you this, Eddie, when it comes to cars and motorcycles, the advice I'd give is if you really like something, don't get rid of it unless you have to. I think everybody has a coulda, woulda, shoulda story with a car or a bike. I sorely regret letting go of a couple of things. Now I realize, Eddie, we can't take it with us, but we can keep it while we're here. You can't do that. You have to tell us what you would have kept. Your Lamborghini. I mean, what what would you have kept? The Lamborghini, I would sound like the NRA and have that when they pry it out of my cold, dead fingers. But I did have a lovely Porsche 993. 
C4S, Golf Blue, the only one ever made, I believe. Didn't you just recently replace this kind of? Did you just get a blue GT3? It's a new one. Believe me, I'd trade two of those, have the old one back. The land yacht? Yeah, the land yacht. But at the time, I mean, it's like you got too many cars, not enough time. You think twice. I had an old Mangusta. I wish I'd still had a Datamasa Mangusta. That was a miserable car, but one that I never really got the better of. And I'd like to have done that. And some more incidental cars that I'd love to have back to and motorcycles. I was able to buy my first motorcycle back 20, 25 years after I'd sold it. So that was a great pleasure. So the advice I would give is that if you've got something you love, don't let it go. Whether that's a person or an automobile or a watch or whatever, make sure that you really think twice about getting rid of it. The other advice is act fast because I think we've all had situations where something comes around and if you think it's good, don't act impulsively. But if you want it and you're in a position to acquire it, get it. I remember a beautiful bit Serini that I had looked at on a Friday said, well, you know, I'll get back to you. Called back Monday. I said, I'll take it. And of course, by then it was sold and I'll never, ever be in a position to buy another one because their prices have skyrocketed. Isn't it funny too, the small margin of price sometimes haunts us because we don't want to, it's not that the money, it's that you don't want to think you overpaid for it. I was talking with another art friend recently about that. He was saying, well, man, this dealer wants X, Y, Z. That's a lot of money. I said, yeah, but think about it. The pain of that extra 20 or 25% or 30% will absolutely evaporate in six months. And I guarantee you within a year, you won't even remember how much extra you paid. You'll be so glad that you have. <laughs> There's actually a fellow in the car business, Don Williams, whose Blackhawk collection is quite famous. I believe he, among others, has said something like, you can never pay too much. You can only pay too soon. And of course, the market will eventually, we hope, adjust up and make everything worth its price eventually. Isn't it funny you're sitting in the dealership and you're buying this car that's kind of a stretch. So they're going through like Porsche does where every single thing is a la carte. The lug nuts are a la carte. You're going through this whole thing and your austerity light begins to flash by about the fourth decision. You're like, well, I don't know if I need the Bose system. I don't know if I need this. I don't know. If I need <laughs> that's right. Toward the end of the order, you start kind of curtailing yourself a little bit. So then you finally get the car six months later, whenever the car arrives. And boy, the first thought is, you know, how much would it take to retrofit the heated seats? You know? <laughs> How much would it, what was I thinking? What was I thinking right. when I got a convertible without heated seats? How could I even manage that? So literally we never remember that difference in price. We only remember how miserable we are that it didn't have that or that we weren't happy with one particular thing or like the one that got away. You said, well, I can't even remember what they wanted for it. I just remember I didn't get it. Car manufacturers have obviously got a great formula now because they all have these elaborate configurators. You can waste hours and hours of time and let your imagination go wild, you know, configuring a car in any number of ways. And, and it's certainly given customers uh, an outlet for their imagination and a way of spending some fantasy money. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter with Robert Ross. 
I have to say, though, the more these configurators and online resources are there, the more important the reviews and the color and the storytelling and the providence that gentlemen like yourself bring to these things that really make any brand or any client that much more valuable. Because people, I know this in my own experience, is people want a story to tell. And if you have an object or you acquire something, it's not just walking up and saying, well, here's my Fornicetti secretary or here's my thing or this piece of furniture. You say, well, do you know that that's the academia in Milan, that that was done before, blah, blah, blah. And it's that story. It's the romance. And it's, as they always say, it's the sizzle, not, you know, more than the steak, as they would say back in the Sears washing machine sales school I went to. So I feel like that is really what makes us all go. You know, those stories and how you tell them. It's completely true. I think a history buff or a nostalgia buff is going to be more inclined to appreciate that than some of the people sitting in the marketing departments who might not have a perspective to really appreciate the history of their brand. And those connections are hugely important to me. If I didn't think there was a guy named Ferdinand Porsche and his son and grandson who actually had a hand in creating the 9-11, it wouldn't quite be the same car. So I think those narratives are essential to really connect a customer with an automobile. Certainly today, I mean, we don't have faces attached to cars so much. It's rare that an automotive manufacturer will even reveal the name of the designer responsible. And if there was a designer responsible, it was probably a team of designers. But imagine, think back on all the great names in automotive design, and chances are they probably drew that car on a cocktail napkin before it actually took life. And that's a magical part of the creative process that just doesn't happen anymore. This reminds me of Carol Shelby and the design of the rear fastback shapes. And I hope you could tell us a little bit of a Carol Shelby story. You've met so many incredible people. Carol Shelby was a character and I certainly had no claim on his attention for the earlier part of his career when he achieved so many great things. By the time I'd met him, he was full of stories and you kind of push a button and he'd just go, which is one of the amazing things. But I asked him a couple of questions that I think were a little off the grid, so to speak. At the time, I was actually restoring a GT350, one of the greatest cars ever made, 65 GT350. And I asked him, Miss Shelby, I want to get a little sense about some of the paint schemes. You know, we've been having a little trouble trying to mix up Guardsman Blue for the stripes on the hood of this car. What a lot of people don't know is that only about 25% of the 65 GT350s actually got stripes put on at Shelby's factory. The rest were either unstriped or striped by the dealers. In fact, Pete Brock came up with some very specific dimensional diagrams that allowed them to paint the stripes because the stripes aren't the same width from front to back. And a lot of little secrets that you find out when you actually restore one of these cars. And my car had actually had the stripes put on the factory, so we restored it to that spec. Of course, the irony is that they weren't the same stripes. They were brand new stripes, so it really doesn't matter where they put them on, but that's a whole different bit of circular thinking. So I'm asking Carol, I said, you know, we're having a little trouble matching this blue. Was there a formula you guys used or what, what was it? Oh, hell, Robert. And then he proceeded to tell me a story about how Dale or whoever the painter was, was usually drunk on Monday and wouldn't come in. He said, me and Pete, we'd have to go in the back room, mix up some blue paint. And Pete said, does that look right? He said, I don't know, it look right to you? Yeah, I guess it looks right. <laughs> the cars that got painted with blue stripes on a Monday might have been a completely different blue stripe than they were the next Tuesday. That's why I have to get a kick out of these judges. I remember when I took my car to be judged the first time. These guys do a lot of work. They're great guys. But there's nothing like seeing about eight big 50, 60-year-old guys rolling around under a car. And all you see are the legs sticking out as they're trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. What I'm 
pointed out that the hood rivets on the hood pins for this car weren't right. I was 10 years old when they made this car. I can't tell you what kind of hood rivets they used and whatnot. But I had the pleasure and the good fortune to have Pete Brock with me that day. And he said, oh, hell, when, when they ran out of rivets, they'd send the gopher down to McMaster car to pick up a bag of rivets. There's no Shelby rivet. And if you'd actually asked one of those guys back then, if there was a special kind of rivet they used, he would have probably taken you the back and beat the shit out of you. Because the fact of the matter is nobody cared about that stuff back then. Well, these are hot rodders too, right? Aren't these guys that are just making things happen? And there's nothing, I guess we look back at these things with such a providence and so special and precious and they're really not. Now they're precious Fabergé eggs, but back then they were just cars. And that's kind of the magic of it too. You know, we made this stuff very precious. They're all very valuable now and people want to make everything perfect, but the fact of the matter is they were just stuff that got built. You know, you were talking about the way the welds were made and the panels fit. I mean, good heavens, Eddie, paint jobs on Ford and Mustang from the 1960s was as deplorable. Huck Finn painted better cars with his paintbrush than these guys at the factory did. You restore an Italian car from the 60s, and you're lucky if those gaps line up within a quarter inch. It's funny. I went to the Ford plant as a little kid with my parents, and we had just gotten a 64 and a half Mustang, and my dad was so excited we went down to the Van Nuys plant to watch them. Now, they were making Mustangs, and he saw someone with a hammer force the seat into the car. And he was so off put by that. He says, I'm never going to go to a car assembly line again. I mean, when you see how these things are put together like that, it really put him off way back when. But I guess he that's part of the charm of it. I remember working on a project where people were using digital fonts, but I wanted all the signs hand painted because I felt that it would put more soul into it, that we don't always know all the details, but we sense, we assimilate and sort of a sense the soul. I think cars could be that same way. And it's probably better that the rivets weren't all the same on every single thing. We know humans were there. Isn't it reassuring to know that a person made it? One thing that comes to mind has nothing to do with cars at all, but let's think about soup because I've been really into soup lately. Home alone, there's not much to do. So you know, you'll make some soup. Well, I guarantee you, I've got a deli around the corner that makes the best chicken soup in the world. Shout out to Weiler's Deli. Oh man, is it good. Well, I can't make soup like that. There's something about their chicken soup, man. It's special. They must maybe wave a magic wand over that chicken because it's special. And I guarantee you, whatever I pour out of a box at my house doesn't taste like that. But they're both claiming they're both made with chickens. I guess, you know, how different can the chicken be? It's the formula. It's the secret touch. It's the human touch that goes into that homemade soup. And these old cars are exactly the same. There was a human touch that went into them. Is there anything that you can tell our audience about how you try to apply that human touch into the work that Ross Madrid does as separating yourself from just typical agencies? And if you're a client, and you've got a brand that's probably lost in the crowd or something like this. How do you go about separating those things? If they are stuck in sloganeering and they are stuck in that automotive kind of syndrome of wannabe and so forth, how do you help connect them? How do you bring soul to something that didn't have it or that you have to go find it? I think that as predictable an answer as this may be, it's really important to find some authenticity in anything that you do. And whether you're writing a story or making a product or raising a child, it's got to be done with an authentic spirit. It's got to be done right. And so many times, Words and slogans are interchangeable. If you can say the same thing about two completely separate products or people, I don't care what it is, then all of a sudden you really haven't said anything at all. There's got to be something unique about every single thing. 
there's got to be something unique about every single car that you drive or wine that you drink or watch that you wear. Certainly, there's something unique about every single person in the world. And I'd like to think that once you can discover those unique attributes, you can start to tell a story that actually has some merit and captivates someone's attention. And just think about it. You might very well want to own a car or a watch or collect a wine because of that unique attribute and because it lets you compare and contrast with other watches and wines and cars. And that sort of gets back to your initial question, Eddie, about collecting. That's the magic. The beauty of collecting is that it gives you an opportunity to put things in context and you get to compare one with the next. And then all of a sudden it becomes a more valuable experience and a more gratifying experience, or dare I use the word, a holistic experience because these things don't live in a vacuum. They don't. And up to a certain point, the more the merrier. Well, Robert, it seems to me that what we've uncovered in this interview or series of interviews is to sort of say, we're, we're all looking for the authenticity and not only ourselves, but in the things we appreciate. And truth is something that is built into us. Either we appreciate it or we like it, whether it's truth in design, truth in beauty, truth in experience. Robert, this has truly been a pleasure and a wonderful experience for me, just learning a little bit more about you. We've all enjoyed so much the added value of you really bringing the matters to cars that matter. And I won't pretend to be a host, but thank you for being the elusive catfish in the pond now for so long that we finally got into the boat for a few minutes. So thank you so much. And Ross Madrid is the company, is the website. Otherwise, let's all just keep listening to Cars That Matter. Well, Eddie, thank you so much. It's just wonderful having the tables turned and the shoe on the other foot. And now I know what it's like. So I'm going to go easier on everybody from now on. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Many thanks to Robert Ross for, for letting us turn the tables on him today and being a really good sport with a lot of those questions. So, of course, you'll look forward to having him as your regular host next week. For Cars That Matter, I'm Eddie Sato. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Eddie Sato. Produced by Chris Porter. Edited by Chris Porter. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Eddie Sato. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.